1: Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Martha Jocelyn, who has written 50 books. 50. 50 of all forms for young readers. Uh, There is YA, picture books, mid-grade, loads in between, and we talk all about it this week. You can hear how much she thinks about the way her books look. Also, all about her new one, it's in the Aggie Morton Mystery Queen series, inspired by Agatha Christie. And we talk about how much she plans what will happen along the way.
2: I was very relieved to read in the edited versions of um, Agatha Christie's Notebooks that she often did not know. And that gave me great comfort, but she was, she was very much aware of the method of the murder. I think that was for her was often how she started was knowing how the person would die, whoever that person might be. And whoever might've caused it was not necessarily at the front of her, of her process, but how the murder would take place. So that I actually did know. I knew the body had to be found on the beach, so either it had fallen from the cliff or it was it, it was a drowning.
1: There's more with Martha Jocelyn in this week's Writer's Routine. Welcome along to the show. It's Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside an author's working day to see how they get stuff done, to see how they get that idea from their head uh, and they get it down on the page, how they plot it, how they plan it, how they plan their day to give them the best chance of getting that done, of getting their creativity out there, of giving it the best chance to to flow, I guess. Uh, Let's chat to Martha Jocelyn then. She writes all types of books for young readers. And there's a lot to learn in this. Even if you don't write for the same audience that Martha does, it's always good to almost remember the rules, so then you can try and rip the rule book up. I think that's always a great bit of advice. We talk about how to write young adult fiction and how that differs from mid-grade. Also how she plans out picture books, how she writes entire stories with one-syllable words, but makes them very engaging at the same time. I always think it's good to be reminded of these of these writing tricks and, and, and writing games you can play with yourself just to give a new aspect, a new spin on your story. Now, her new book is out next month. It's the fourth in the Aggie Morton Mystery Queen series. It's all about a version of Agatha Christie, uh, a 12-year-old called Aggie Morton and what she gets up to with her best mate, Hector Poirot. The new one is called The Seaside Corpse. It's set in 1903, Lyme Regis, which is a seaside town in the south of the UK. Lyme Regis is on the Jurassic Coast, which is a part of the country very famous for dinosaur fossils. And in the story, Aggie tries to find a dinosaur, but discovers a body instead. We talk about the idea for the series, how it came from a chat at a book launch. Also, how she knows if an idea is a goer and how really a form of peer pressure helps her write. And we get into it as always with what Martha sees around her in the place where she sits down to write.
2: That depends on the time of year. Normally at this time of year in the autumn or the summer and then early autumn, I'm sitting on my front porch and at one end of the porch is a hammock and a couple of old wicker chairs. And at the other end is a table. It really is become, in the summer, my porch becomes two extra, three extra rooms, office, dining, and lounge. (laughs) But as the winter gets colder, I tend to write in my bed.
1: Uh, Now you are, you're writing in um. Where well, you're you're based in Canada, right? So, just uh, I'm, I'm imagining a stunning ideal of wilderness and, and forests. Uh, is there any, is there anything close to that? The view that you're getting from your porch is it as stunning as I'm hoping it to be.
2: No, I'm sadly it is not. It is a small street in a small town, so I have other houses around me, all beautiful. People other than me take care of their gardens to an extreme extent. And so there are lots of beautiful trees and flowers, but not wilderness. And uh, there's a street that goes by. I'm actually on the street that leads to the Shakespearean Festival, which is a huge theater event in our town um, for many months of the year. And so I get traffic of tourists going by – mostly pedestrian traffic, people coming by on their way to the theatre. And so I have a lot of people watching from my porch and many neighbours as well that wave, but know not to, mostly not to talk to me because if I'm there with my notebook or my computer there, they realise I'm working. So it's it's small town, not wild Canada.
1: When you are there, wherever you're working, if you're in the porch, if you've had to Uh, Keep yourself inside. Uh, Aside from the bundles of tourists and everything going on there, what is there that's maybe practical that you see around you? So I'm talking notes, notebooks, post-its, anything that kind of keeps you in track with what you're meant to be writing.
2: I have, beside almost every chair in the house and outside, I have a little office set up so that I don't have to sort of carry things around. I have, you know, a cutlery tray, for instance, full of pencils and scissors and paper clips and other weird things like clothes pegs or a few post-it notes, colored pencils, so that wherever I am, I don't have to get up again. But I also have a series of notebooks, which are dedicated to different things with me. And I usually have a computer and a phone, but nothing, nothing uh, that looks, you know, there's really very rarely a wall next to me. So I'm either looking out at the street or um, I'm just, it's all in a sort of little, as if I'm a picnic writer or something, I'm carrying things with me from place to place.
1: And when you are sat there, when you are when you've plunked yourself down in whichever chair you happen to be in, um, w- what's the actual tool that you're writing within your picnic writing set? Is it, uh, we, you know, we get quite niche and nerdy with like laptops and writing softwares and fonts and all of that stuff.
2: I write first in a notebook and it's usually in a pencil with a pencil, uh, which is a black wing pencil or with a pen, which is a Muji, um, you know, the little gel pens either black or navy blue and those uh, they don't sink through the paper so that's nice and I prefer graph paper or pin dot paper I don't like lines in my notebooks because I find them quite confining because often my notebooks have art or sketches or something as well as writing so I like the freedom of being able to you know draw outside the line, so to speak, but also to be able to turn the notebook and write in a different direction. If I'm changing what I'm thinking about, then I'll sometimes just do it horizontally instead of vertically, if that makes sense. And when I'm on my computer, (laughs) okay, on my computer, however, which is a MacBook Air, I Uh, use, I prefer a non-serif font, which would be currently my favorite is uh, Verdana. And I usually do it quite large, 12 or 14 points, so that I can see it possibly without my glasses if I need to.
1: Um, uh, When you're talking about the earlier drafts of something, when you're working in your notebook and you you mentioned you might sketch something out you might get a little bit arty and draw because you're writing younger fiction it tends to be more um designed on the page i would say than uh than adult writing you might you might get pictures in there you might get uh different types of font that are emphasizing different parts of the story which you wouldn't get as frequently in in books for older people, how much are you thinking about the design of the page when you're simply writing things out that first time
2: uh, when i'm thinking I don't really think about the design of the page when I'm writing freehand. I do on the computer. I often will change the margins for instance i've just i've just been working on what's called a high low, which is high interest low vocabulary for older, like teenagers who have a writing, I mean, a reading level of about third or fourth grade and eight or nine year old um, here in Canada. So, so they're, they're high interest to keep the, to keep the teenager uh, turning the pages, but the vocabulary itself is quite simple. So those books when they're published have very wide margins and, Quite a bit of space between the words so I actually set up my page to reflect that and it so it looks like the final the final published book when I'm working on it. but yes when I'm doing a normal uh, YA young adult book or a middle grade book, there is a lot of um, as you say text that sorry I'm stuttering. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, italics, for instance, or bold or something changes in the, in the font and that will, that's, but that's on the computer. In my notebook, it's much more, <laughs> my notebooks are in rampant disarray. They're kind of hilarious, but, but that, you know, sometimes I, for instance, I have to draw a clock of a 24 hour clock with little segments to figure out can they actually do all these things in this 24 hour period? You know, I've given them, or have I given them 40 hours worth of action in the 11 hours they'll be awake. So that's the sort of visual that I might have to do. Um, Another thing I do in my notebook is cutting my page vertically down the side and I did this very specifically when I was working on the mysteries, which was which are narrated in first person by um, a character called Aggie. and I on one side of the page, which I consider the on stage part, I write down what Aggie can see what is she, what is she doing? where is she? what is she looking at? what action is she part of? all the first person stuff. And then offstage in the second column, I'm showing everything else that's going on. Where's the murderer? Where's the where are the servants? Who's doing what? When and how that might, you know, as I flip the page and start another page of Aggie, how how the action offstage will affect the on stage action. So that's that's a key part of my notebook when I'm working actively on a mystery.
1: That technique, I know that you um, uh, teach or have taught before. Uh, these devices that you have for keeping track of the characters and their motivations and what they're doing, how are you developing these things? Is it something that you're reading or is it just your trial and erroring them and because you've written like 50 books now, it's, it's just something that you do without much thought?
2: I'm, in general, terrible at keeping track of anything. And these are things that I have just come intuitively to as a way to try and corral <laughs> the characters. Um, I, I don't like the term pantser, but I am absolutely a pantser. And that had to change when I started writing mysteries because I it, it's very clear that a great deal has to be seated and kept kept in mind as you're or come back to as you're proceeding through a plot so so these were these are techniques that i have developed on my own <laughs> the on stage off stage and the keeping track of time and geography maps i really liked um, i really i will do you know a house plan who is how does the kitchen actually join the dining room is there a hallway is there a secret passage is there a stairway those sort of floor plans and little maps are also very useful
1: What what's interesting is that you're you, you know you, you're not a uh, what some people would say uh, uh, well you're, you're kind of a pants or what some people would say i know you don't like that term uh and y- y- yet yeah, you're You're coming up with these devices, you're analysing the way that you're writing, I would say, quite thoroughly if you are thinking about someone's motivations and their off stage and their on stage thoughts and actions and and in a way that not everyone would. Why do you think you have come to write that way? Is, Is it just because you're writing mystery where you maybe need to plan it out a bit more or is there just the nature of who you're writing for? does there have to be a bit more purpose in the use of words and what the characters are doing?
2: Hmm. I think it really, um, I think a mystery is so specific in its needs and a mystery for children, even more so that it has, it's, it's a bit of a combination of both the things you're suggesting because, um, Clarity is essential. Nuance is not so good for an 11-year-old. Um, really have to be fair about, about where, the clues and the truth of what you've set up. And so that is really, um, really has to be <laughs> set out very carefully. And yet, you know, not pedantically, so it's it that's very important as well is to keep it humorous and and real life for a kid
1: you you were talking about high interest low vocab earlier on i think it was um how like that that, that sounds quite challenging and much more thought through than many other authors would do for perhaps their readership the fact that you're you have to make things very exciting, but you have to make uh, the vocab, the words that you can use, only up to a certain extent. How tough is that to you to keep things gripping on the page without being too extensive with the vocabulary?
2: The high low is really a challenge because, and this is something I I used to teach before I ever even tried to write one. I used to I used to uh, teach adult writers of. Of kids' books to write, you know, one of their homework assignments would be to write a paragraph or a page of a story for a seven year old, an early, a really early reader just starting using one syllable words only. And then to write another page for a teenager using one syllable words only. And that's a really great exercise because obviously you're using very different words and the story itself is quite different, but I had never put it (laughs) into practice myself, certainly for a whole novel. And yes, it makes you really conscious of the, you can't play tricks with the language. And that's something that is part of the fun of being a writer, but it, in this case, you learn to say things in a plainer way but it actually propels the action more quickly if you're not pausing to, to be uh, poetic or verbose about it. So, so it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a good challenge for any writer to try as a warm up exercise, I would say.
1: It's amazing that you've written for so many different uh, types of young reader everything from picture books mid-grade uh to ya as well and you know there's a hefty difference in uh, the uh, like how a five-year-old might read something how uh, an eight or nine-year-old might read something even though there's just a few years between them how what techniques are you using to get the voice right when you're switching between different ages of readership and writing like quite quickly. How are you knowing that you're writing for a 10 year old precisely and you can write for a five year old equally precisely, but completely different.
2: That for the most part is an instinctive thing. And I think that's true of many writers for, of children's books that, that you can figure it out. I do have a very from wordless books for babies all the way through teenagers. So So I do have quite a range and now I've had some practice, but it's more it's not so much the the language that tells you what who you're writing for, but the the idea itself or the character or the the premise of the story, you know, what's going to happen today. And it somehow falls pretty much into place as a picture book. A picture book oddly can have much fancier language than a book for an you know a picture book for a four year old can have bigger words and more poetry in a way than a book for a six or seven year old who's reading for for himself for the first time. So that's that's just one thing you learn with with um, with practice and from reading. You just read a million books. And that helps a lot, the million books. (laughs) My writing day begins with a walk. I get up and go for a walk before anything else. And then I come back and have breakfast. And I don't write very long. It depends at what stage I am in in a project, obviously. If I'm just starting out, I'm doing what is a what I call a conversational draft, where I'm just sort of chatting to myself in my notebook. Um, If I have an idea that I'm working on, I will just kind of talk around it, Um, not doing special character profiles or anything, just moving through ideas. I like to make lists, things that could happen, things that uh, that would challenge the character, who the character talks to now, what the character looks like from someone else's point of view. Um, just little snatches of dialogue, tiny little things, and just talk to myself. And sometimes that these lists and and scraps turn into a page or two of actual writing. And then I falter again and I just go back to to sort of humming to myself. Is what it is. And that's the beginning. Then if I just need a break from trying to be creative, I will maybe transcribe onto the onto the computer. But normally I write first many days before I put things on the computer and then I put things on the computer. I'm really I'm selecting from the notebook but also um, not editing i i don't believe in writing and editing at the same time i really just bash out this long messy messy pages and pages and pages before thinking about what's really there I don't write chronologically if i even if i have a, a general idea of a whole book i just write the scenes that that come to me and that's i don't think about shaping them until later i know i know it'll get better <laughs> and and i only write for a couple of hours sometimes with friends i have a standing date since the pandemic with a couple of friends that i write with online a couple of times a week um, for those morning hours and sometimes just myself. And then I do other things. Um, some, some of them work-related, of course, working on a talk or a PowerPoint or if I'm working on t- – the pen- before the Aggie Morton books, actually, I was always working on two books at once. A writing book and a and illustrating, because I'm also an illustrator. So I could have two books going and I could go back and forth between them and extend my day that way by having time where I was cutting paper and and arranging colors and shapes on a page, and time where I was um, actively writing out words or thinking about writing out words. Um, since I've been doing Aggie Morton pretty much exclusively for five or six years to complete the four books, um, I haven't been making too much. I haven't made an actual illustrated book in that time, but I still take time to do art because that that helps somehow. It helps make the brain move. So, sorry, I got off routine and I got into all this theory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> let, let, no, that's fine. let me ask you about um you mentioned you write with a group of friends online that you've been doing post pandemic um uh, what what, what are you, like what form is it taking and why are you doing that surely you're all just kind of sat there staring at each other on zoom but also writing your own work H- how how what are you doing and how is it helping
2: we're on zoom all in our separate places Um, I actually have a couple of different groups of friends that I'm doing different things with. One group is very into sprints. If we're all more or less in the same stage of really just trying to get words done, we'll set the kitchen timer. We're all sitting there and we all just write nonstop hot writing for 22 minutes at a time. And then we check in and say how many words uh oh, eight hundred and twenty-two. Great. Okay, three, two, one, go, and we do it again. And so that's that's one thing. The other, the other group, um, we just—it's similar, except that we're not sprinting. We're just quietly. We tell each other what we're planning to do this morning, and then we go off. Uh, we time it. We have different session, you know, session times, depending on whether people need to refresh their teacups or not. And we come back and we say, well, that was good. Or, well, that was awful. Or how do you spell such and such? And, you know, have a little check in and then go off again. And that's, that's usually for two or three hours. And that just having other people busy in front of you makes a big difference. It really, it keeps you there. It's this, it's like going on a writing retreat, which I do a couple of times a year with with one one group in particular, big group and we've been doing it for 8 or 9 years now. And having everyone in her own room, <laughs> typing away and coming out and meeting for lunch and again for for cocktail hour, it's well, everyone else is working. I guess I'll do it too. And I certainly work much harder on those retreats than any other time. Even though I live by myself. So why do I have to leave my house to work? Well, just because there are people in the next room writing also. So
1: Is that, is that accountability? Is it accountability because, well, they're doing it and they know that I'm here to do the same thing, so I might as well get on with it? Is there some strange peer pressure there?
2: Yes. Yes. But it's not, it's not actual, nobody's putting pressure on anyone except oneself. So um, it's just, it's just a nice, it's a very nice routine. And it's a very nice tradition that we've developed. (laughs) When you are
1: not on a writing retreat, when you are back at home, if the words and the creativity isn't coming if it's not flowing uh, what have you learned along the way to help you out uh, maybe another walk at a certain time a cup of coffee a piece of music maybe a, a writing technique just to get things going is there anything you do martha
2: i don't really have i don't believe in writer's block i think obviously in the course of a day there are the thoughts slow and I, I don't really think of writing or words as being things that flow like a river um but i think for professional writers it's our job we just have to keep going and so i will get up and put on a laundry or decide it's time for lunch but i'm not i'm not actively writing for more than a couple of hours as i said so it's really anyone can do that <laughs> it it's just coming back again and again and again and making it longer, and making it better, and making it stronger, and making it funnier. Those are the things that actually take place away from the desk or the paper and occur to, occur to me somewhere else, usually.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary
1: we'll be back with more from martha in just a sec now if you're enjoying the show if, if you are learning something along the way that you think might just tweak the way that you plan your day and get your stories done you can pay it back to us i guess You can say thank you to us for this by becoming a backer on our Patreon page. Now, it doesn't take a lot. Just a few dollars a month, I know times are tight. Just a few dollars really helps us keep going. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as we can. Authors of all types. Crime, young adult, children, uh, memoir, sci-fi, thriller, uh, uplit. We've brought you them all. And I hope you've learned something along the way. Now, by becoming a backer at Patreon, you're not just supporting the show. You can get yourself some merch. There is bonus content. There is even a way for your book to sponsor an episode. So if you've published something recently and you don't think it's got the fanfare that it deserves, let me plug away at it for you, please, to help make that happen and to help us carry on doing the show, become a backer, whatever you can spare goes a long way at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Martha Jocelyn talking about her new novel. Uh, It's her 50th. It's the fourth in the Aggie Morton mystery series called The Seaside Corpse. Now, we chat about how much she plans out the mystery, who will die. How does she know who will be the killer as well? Uh, Also, you can hear how she got the idea for the series, how it came through a chat at a book launch, and we get back into it talking about how she knows that an idea is worth it, that an idea is a goer.
2: There's not really a shortage of ideas. I have a lot of ideas. I have many, many dozens, if not hundreds, of notebooks full of ideas. And some of them them are really just one sentence. Something occurs to me. And then I forget it. And three years later, I'm looking through a notebook trying to find something else. And I go, Oh, Oh, look at that. That was such a good idea. And that will start to blossom. Other times I have one of my picture books. I sat down on a park bench one day, killing, I don't know, 28 minutes before I met a friend for lunch. And I wrote the entire script of the, of the, I'd had the first line in my head one some many hardly any and it was it's a concept book it's sort of a math mathemat- a very primary mathematical concept book and as I sat on that bench the whole thing just came not you know not just the first words but the rest of it also and so that does occasionally happen but of course the fewer the words, the more important each one is. So picture books are much harder to write than, than novels in some ways. Um, how do I know it's a goer? I, I don't. If it, if it clings inside my brain, if my, if my pages seem to be more and more devoted to a particular idea, then it's time to get a notebook just for that idea and, and to keep working on it that way.
1: Now, your fourth in the Maggie Morton Mystery Queen series is out um well now, when this is released. It's the Seaside Corpse. Just take me back to kind of the the start of the the whole series. So this is Agatha Christie as a twelve-year-old detective, right? Her best friend Hector Poirot. What what made you think that like meshing up these two very famous literary characters for Uh, I guess, mid-grade to teen, YA, why this was a good idea and something that you'd run with? What really sparked your imagination about it?
2: The the initial moment came at a book event and I was chatting with my editor and she... (laughs) We were actually talking about Nancy Drew and how there was a resurgence of middle-grade mystery. And she said to me, you know, who what sort of mystery character would you come up with if you were going to have a detective? And I said, well, obviously it would have to be a girl. And we actually give each other, my editor and I give each other credit for having just said Agatha Christie. She says it was me and I say it was her. But within one minute of saying, oh my goodness, Agatha Christie, 12 year old girl detective. How brilliant is that? I thought, and her best friend would be Hector Perot. He's from Belgium. And her grandmother would be a smart blue eyed old lady who, you know, who always has a a crack and a bit of wisdom. So it came together in really in a flash, in a casual conversation. And and I was halfway through another novel, which I put aside and began to write the first Aggie Morton, The Body Under the Piano, uh, with very very little <laughs> very little trouble coming up with, with what would what this person the, the main the main question in approaching the Aggie Morton books was what sort of little girl grows up to devise and cunningly execute well over 300 murders? And that was sort of my leading thought as I made Agatha uh, Aggie Morton. I mean, obviously she's not the real Agatha Christie. There are some overlaps with her life, but she was the inspiration for this character in many, many ways. And so Aggie Morton is a burgeoning writer. She has what her mother calls a morbid preoccupation. She has flights of fancy that are often quite gruesome that happen inside her mind. And she's very curious and observant about the world around her. So those are all things that, that gave me a huge whole character. And one of the f- most fun parts was, of course, having her look at the world with a wink to the way Agatha Christie herself would put characters against each other or plot points um, from her eventual plots, allowing this 12-year-old child to think about about what might happen in any situation that we, uh, that the certainly the adult readership for these books recognizes immediately and that the child readership thinks is funny and grim.
1: If you're uh, using this as a way of trying to unpack why Agatha Christie was quite fixated on murdering so many people on the page. Um, How how much do you, in using Aggie Morton to do that, how much do you think you've answered that question yourself?
2: Well, it's entirely fictional because, of course, although her own father has died uh, just a few months before the first book starts, which in real life, Agatha Christie's father died when she was 11. So Aggie is is thinking about death, and she is more morbidly preoccupied. But the fictional part in my books is that she keeps stumbling over dead bodies. So she she begins to have um, a relationship with a number of corpses and gets pretty... uh, pretty entrenched in in figuring out what happens to them. So that that didn't not happen to Agatha Christie really. So I don't honestly answer the question, how did Agatha Christie's curiosity come about, but I have an answer that's fun to read about. <laughs> well, I wanted to find a way to bring Agatha Christie's eventual fascination with archaeology into her ch- into her childhood. And this is, I, I ended up, in order to make it realistic, in order to make it within reach of her home in Torquay, I landed on paleontology rather than archaeology, so that she and Hector have the opportunity to join a young scientists club at a dig, a paleontological, paleontological dig in Lyme Regis on the south coast of, well, all of you in the UK know where it is, on the coast of um, Devon, right? Dorset. Oops. Um,
1: yeah, Dorset. Yes, yeah.
2: <laughs> Dorset, <laughs> the Jurassic Coast, where many, many, where well, Lyme Regis, where Mary Anning uh, found the first ichthyosaur, um, about almost one hundred years before the Aggie Morton book takes place in nineteen oh three. So it's famous for that sort of thing, and so this this dig has has discovered a large ichthyosaur the bones of a large the ichthyosaur in on the uh, on the beach and they are going to retrieve recover it from from the rock and aggie and hector are there to to join and to watch and to be excited about this million year old corpse multi million year old corpse of Although, of course, in 1903, they didn't understand quite how many millions of years ago these bones uh, had, had been lying there since. So they don't limit themselves to the ichthyosaur corpse, but there, another corpse shows up on the beach and they are the ones to discover it.
1: You're telling a story about 1903 Lyme Regis. How concerned are you about the research to make well this timeline uh, and this location quite accurate? We're seeing Aggie in the early 20th century. How much do you want to paint that like it was real life?
2: I am very concerned about making it pretty close to real life. I normally would have gone to England to hang out in Lyme Regis for a couple of weeks. But because of the pandemic, both the third book, which is set in Harrogate, and the fourth book, which is set in Lyme Regis, were unavailable to me, which was incredibly frustrating. But for the Seaside Corpse, I got a map, a historical map sent from Britain. That was um, drawn in, I think, 1901. So it was very. It's a beautiful, big line-drawn map, which was very helpful in just understanding, um, understanding how the size of the town and and the extent of the cliffs, and so on, and that helped me decide where I was going to have this fictional um, tent encampment of the paleontologists but i also was i also did a lot of interviewing of people who live there so i had zoom calls and email exchanges with a number of really generous wonderful local people someone who who told me about the the way the tides worked and yes if someone fell off a cliff here his body would likely end up here and if I met one fantastic um, fossil hunter, well, a couple of fossil hunters, one of whom does tours at, on, on the beach all the time. And he talked me through what the actual, you know, what's, what are you walking over? What are the rocks you might see? What are the various shells and fossils that you would find? And then I had a wonderful exchange with a man who had himself recovered an ichthyosaur in a boat uh, very close to the low tide mark so that it was only available and revealed for a very few minutes at a time. And the recovery of this massive, in his case, 11-foot prehistoric reptile had to be um, extracted from the earth in an incredibly short period of time. So his very vivid account um, really gave me a lot of information and and some of it is in the book. And I, I named the boat in the book after him, after his boat because he was just so kind and taking so much time to talk to me. So my research sadly was very much to all – online. Um, And I did have to make a couple of geographical, geological, whatever, whatever the term is, changes to the, to the nature of, I needed the kids to be able to get up and down the cliffs from the camp, which would not have been possible exactly where, where I had them doing it. But that's, I do note that in the author's note. And it's, I know that locals will go, what? This could not. This would never have happened. This couldn't be, but um, but that's where that's where the fiction part of historical fiction comes into play, and I had to be, <laughs> I had to I had to make a few allowances. But yes, I really I I got a camper's guide so that I had the proper way that tents were tents looked and you know all kinds of information i do really intensive research because a lot of readers are very picky librarians and kids can be the most picky <laughs> sorry
1: you you uh you said that you're not that much of a planner but you've kind of had to be to a degree with these because they're mysteries so how thoroughly are you planning a mystery story for like a 12 year old what what do you need to know before you sit down to write this story
2: uh, this particular story the seaside corpse um I wasn't really sure that it who was going to die and I wasn't really sure who was going to be the murderer I had a very wide selection of suspects it is a closed circums- you know closed community only so many people could have been... Uh, can be suspected of killing the victim. And so that's important. Of course you want red herrings, but you want each of them to be really equally as likely as the next so so that it's a mystery up until the end. I did not know, as I said from the beginning, and I was very... I was very relieved to read in the edited versions of um, Agatha Christie's notebooks that she often did not know, and that gave me great comfort. But she was was very much aware of the method of the murder. I think that was for her was often how she started, was knowing how the person would die. Whoever that person might be and whoever might have caused it, was not necessarily at the front of her of her process, but how the murder would take place. So that I actually did know. I knew the body had to be found on the beach. So either it had fallen from the cliff or it was it, it was a drowning. Um, and that's really where I began. I knew the kids would find her, find him, find it. <laughs> Sorry about that. I knew the kids would find the body and from that point on i had to build i had to build the su- suspects there are a couple of recurring characters that come from the you know that are th- series long characters and so i had to make a place for them in the books in the th- final book of course and other than that i had to plan clues the clues and the revelation, the timing of the revelation, the sort of unfolding of what Aggie and Hector, how they're led astray and how they're led forward are both very important to, to figure out. But yes, (laughs) it's really a challenge.
1: Let me ask you, I think. Lastly, you were talking about the the, the planning and the plotting of the clues. Um, now, you're writing for a, a certain age of audience. Writing mysteries. Now, um, how much thought do you give to the fact that some readers of your stories might not be as, I guess, well versed in solving mysteries as maybe uh, an an older crime reading aficionado, for want of a better phrase. How Kind of led along the way. Do you think some uh, uh, some of your stories need to be in terms of figuring out what the mystery will be? Do you think that your readers need to be a bit more guided than perhaps an adult mystery reader might need to be?
2: No, I don't. I think that part of my part of my task and part of the pleasure of writing the Aggie Morton mysteries is in introducing kids to the tropes that she herself and many other writers developed over over their careers. Um, Anonymous letters or um, red herrings, of course, uh, people in disguise, many different things that we as adult writers just take for granted. But for kids... It may be their very first mystery or among the first mysteries that they read. So, it's just it's a it's a fun way to introduce a puzzle and to show how differently from different points of view a, a puzzle can be looked at and therefore solved. And that's part of that's partly where Aggie's um penchant for writing comes in is that she often will look through, for instance, there's a sequence in the Seaside Corpse where she where she goes through all the suspects, and then there are you know six or seven of them to begin with before she starts chopping them away. Um, and giving them each a motive. And so that's that's a writing exercise. And it's also a mystery exercise and it makes, it introduces kids to the notion of really paying attention. It makes them closer readers and because they're looking for clues. And also just the notion, I mean, a lot of, a lot of middle grade books, of course, end each chapter with a cliffhanger. But in this case, well, for one thing, there is an actual cliff from which to hang, but also um, part of my writing, one thing I would do is if I'm trying to warm up or get myself going, one of those moments where I'm not sure what to do next, as you as you wondered earlier, is to actually write out the cliffhangers for chapters. The possible, even if I haven't, if, even if I'm not anywhere close to that, the possible place things that could happen that would be great ways to end a chapter. And then right toward that, figure out how to get there. It's just a way of, you know, making yourself think. So in a particular direction, direction, as is naming a chapter, giving a title to a chapter can also, without without consciously realizing it can also give a shape to what's going to the importance of what's going to happen in that chapter
1: thank you so much to martha jocelyn for coming on the show um i know that she's a fan of the podcast uh, so i really appreciate you reaching out martha you can find out all about her work. Just give her name a Google. It's Martha, spelled the Canadian way, I think, with no A but an E at the end. M-A-R-T-H-E. Jocelyn, look her up online. You can find details about all 50 of her books. Now, next week, a little gear change from children's books. We're chatting about a form of Scandi Noir with the best-selling Swedish novelist of his generation pretty much around today. Pascal Engman has been called the next Stieg Larsson. His novel Femicide has just been released in the UK for the very first time and you can find out all about it next week on Writer's Routine. In the meantime... Support the show, become a backer at patreon.com forward slash writersroutine. You can follow us on Twitter, we are at writerspod there, and you can get in contact with the show at writersroutine.com. And I will see you next week with Pascal Engerman on the show. Until then, bye.